Podo. Welcome to the Ned Large Radio Hour. I'm Nick Hilton. Welcome. You've got mail. I remember the first time I was at a restaurant and I saw a couple, a man and a woman, on what looked like a date. And they were both absolutely glued to their phones. This wasn't all that long ago, probably less than a decade, but in the years since, that site has gone from noteworthy, like... I could still tell you the name of that restaurant, it was Seafresh in Victoria, to totally mundane, something not even worth recalling. Of course people go on dates and scroll through their phones. What else are they going to do? Talk about their lives? Share emotional intimacies? Eat? I'm a smartphone addict. I admit it. I've checked my screen time on my Apple iPhone SE and it's one hour and 28 minutes per day on average. I figure that should be shocking, except that I know that from those around me, it's not very much by modern standards. I won't name names, but I know people who have six, seven, eight hours of screen time per day. This is the point at which the phone becomes another domain, another life. You will spend a less fortunate person's lifetime staring at that screen, lost in the colours, the attention grabbers grabbing out at you, dragging you in. It's easy to get sucked into the moral panic about smartphone use. But when the original iPhone was released in 2007, the world was a different place. George W. Bush was still president. Tony Blair had left office just two days earlier. But fundamentally, we were a world waiting for the excitement of possibility. This was still an era when people had been wowed by the capacity of iPods, their ability to perform as glorified external hard drives. Given that we now live in a smart world where everything from dishwashers to toasters are Wi-Fi enabled and accessible via the cloud, the world in 2007 was different. The idea of a phone which also had a camera was still novel, one that could also play music and podcasts. That was unique. So we can hardly blame our past selves for getting sucked into the world of the smartphone. Blackberry, on one hand, were building a phone for business, for men in suits who needed to email their mistress or dealer. Apple, meanwhile, were creating the Omniphone, the quintessential smartphone experience. Slick, modern, all-encompassing. The good folk at Samsung and Huawei won't like it, but every serious smartphone since has essentially been an iPhone. Big, vibrant display and an incrementally improving set of functionalities. And by improving, I should perhaps say instead, insinuating. I wrote to Ned saying that I was planning to address the issue of smartphone dependency on this episode. If addiction is too strong a word, then dependency should stand in. And he wrote to me back the following slightly garbled missive. You'll have to forgive him as this was clearly sent whilst on the, on the move. Manifesto entry number two. Technology that has addictive qualities is bad technology. It might be good for shareholders, just as shareholders in Fincer and Brothers or DuPont were blessed by the addictive qualities of their products. But addictive technology breaches the fundamental covenant of technology creator and technology consumer to enhance. To enhance work, to enhance play, to enhance life. Smartphones are just the exemplar par excellence of a trend that has become omnipresent. Beware. 
And once again, for those people listening who want to be able to properly visualise what they've just heard, that was sent in all caps. To address all this, I called up Joe Hollier, who's the co-founder of Lightphone, a company that manufactures so-called dumb phones. Initially, they raised some $415,000 via Kickstarter from terminally online folk who wanted a way of scaling back their smartphone addiction. That was for the Model 1. They've released a second version of the phone off the back of a $3.5 million crowdfunding round. The Lightphone 2, which is on sale now, retails at a slightly eye-watering $299. But the cost isn't the interesting thing. What's interesting is the philosophy. I'm joined for this conversation by my friend Toby Mather, who's CEO of Lingumi, an edtech, and that's education technology for those not in the in the jargon world. Lingumi is an edtech company specialising in language tuition for children. I brought him along in order to provide the perspective of someone who's building a business off the basis of the opposite impulse to Joe's, which is getting people to spend more time on their phones. Anyway, here's the conversation. Roll the tape. Hello. Yeah, I'm here in Brooklyn, New York, and it is 10.30 in the morning. Very nice. So you've still got the whole day ahead of you. And Toby, where, where are you? I'm in, uh, I'm in Greece, and it's what time is it? 5.30 p.m. So you're in the future, and uh, Joe, you're in the past, and I am the ghost of the present. Okay, well, look, Joe, you're the, you're the creator of this thing, this sensation, the light phone, which is now in stores, the light phone 2, second generation of, of what has been a kind of crowdfunded, hugely successful dumb phone. And I'm using that in, in inverted commas because I'd not really heard it before, before I came to this. So first of all, can you tell me about a little bit about your background and the genesis of the uh, light phone idea? Yeah. So I come from a more traditional graphic design background. I worked as a freelance artist and filmmaker doing design work. And back in around 2014, um, ironically, Google had this idea for an experimental program for designers where they had this hypothesis that if given the right resources and guidance, designers could lead a new type of startup. Uh, but as I joined the program, uh, which was, you know, very interesting to my curiosity, uh, I realized quite quickly that they wanted us to make smartphone apps. Uh, we learned a lot about how and why apps would be built and funded, uh, you know, obviously a big correlation there. And uh, something we learned really quickly was that, you know, this metric of retention, how sticky a product was, an app was, how many hours a day someone found themselves checking and rechecking, uh, that was kind of the golden metric. Uh, and we kind of thought, my partner Kai, um, who I met there, you know, it could being any more connected with some new app actually make us any happier? Or is it craving, you know, some time away from this hyperconnectivity. Uh, so that was kind of what set us off on what would become the light phone. You're a graphic designer then by trade. And I can't think of, you know, well, there are, there are lots of things actually, rocket science, et cetera, neurosurgery. But um, I can't think of many bigger leaps for a graphic designer than having to go into like product, actual hardware product design. How did you find, presumably you didn't sit there with screwdrivers and opening up calculators and um, engineering the phone. Presumably you had the idea and then you... You worked with hardware experts. Yeah, I mean, eventually hardware experts came into the picture. Uh, but I would say my first inclination was to go to the plastic store on Canal Street, uh, trace a credit card and get this piece of plastic, which would come to resemble the, the first light phone quite closely. Uh, and using Photoshop just kind of made what I thought 
it might look like from a UX and interface perspective, this kind of glowing through the phone casing. Uh, so it was really naively conceived hardware, you know, and it wasn't terribly complicated, but it was nowhere near a functioning phone. It was a piece of plastic. And so, so you've crowdfunded this um, mm-hmm. via Indiegogo, I think. This has kind of been a project that the masses have supported. And I, I see you've got huge targets in the multi-million do- dollars for this dumb phone. Does that re- reflect, to some extent, a hesitation from general, more traditional kind of capital resources to invest in a project that is sort of anti-technology? Did you have to go t- direct to consumer, so to speak? I think we had to prove traction. Uh, I think, you know, in this program, I had this piece of plastic and I got a very interesting polarizing reaction from investors and general thought leaders in the tech space, but that wasn't enough for anyone to actually cut a check. Uh, It was going to crowdfunding, seeing the press and just the general reaction and how strong it was, both, you know, polarizing again, positive and negative. Uh, That was what slowly kept the momentum going that investors eventually uh, came on board. But even today, our investors are not necessarily the traditional um, investors that one would expect. Uh, We have a lot more individuals who I think come with a a moral compass in addition to like financial incentive with the light phone. Yeah, I I guess it's unusual generally for any kind of product to come with a sort of the baggage of a sort of ideological manifesto. Is that a big deterrent or or did you find that actually the the crowdfunding meant that you had a sort of inbuilt kind of community of people who shared some of your anxieties? And maybe I should also ask you about those anxieties. What were the anxieties that you were addressing beyond the development perspective? What were the kind of the the audience anxieties? Well, I think, you know, the audience was everything in terms of proving that there was something interesting here. I think if there was a universal anxiety we hit, it was just this kind of overwhelming feeling where there was no other option. Uh, The smartphone had kind of come into our lives with, you know, these value propositions of isn't it great to FaceTime your grandma, but they didn't mention you would be checking your email before you get out of your bed. You know, it, mm-hmm. the the reality was much different than uh, the dream, but it so quickly in a matter of years became completely fundamental part of our lives. You know, bringing the smartphone to the bathroom, to the bedroom, every single aspect of our life. Uh, and so, you know, our simple idea was just that, you know, not necessarily to get away from technology forever, but to be more intentional, to try to carve out consciously times where you would have less internet, less technology for the sake of being back in the present. And so what are the current functionalities of the um, the Light Phone 2? Yeah, so the Light Phone at its core is just a very simple phone, calls, text messages, a contact book, and you know, it can group message and those things. Uh, but we've added a couple of what we call simple tools. Uh, they're all built around intentionality, but it's things from like, you know, an alarm clock and a calculator quite mundane to a simple mm-hmm. music player, uh, a way to sync your calendar. Um, there's a little directions tool. So basically, like we tried to take a lot of the utility of the smartphone, the things that, you know, aren't necessarily distractions or trying to, you know, take us away and, you know, use our vulnerabilities against us uh, and to bring them into the phone uh, in a way that was, you know, practical and realistic. You know, it's a very small phone, uh, so it's inherently limited in what it's capable of doing. Um, But, you know, I would say the real 
value of the light phone, the real feature is the lack of internet, the lack of social media, the lack of an infinite news feed, email, uh, you know, and just an internet browser in general and email, especially. Um, yeah. So without those things, you find yourself spending infinitely less time on your phone compared to a smartphone and what you can do with that time. Uh, that's really where the magic kind of happens. Well, in this world where everyone has the uh, the light phone coming coming down the line, one of the people you'll be putting out of business is Toby here. <laughs> so, so Toby, as someone who who runs a business which is app based and has has actually transitioned from hardware to software to some extent, and I want you can may, you maybe touch on that. Kind of what, what's your gut reaction when you see a product like the Light Phone Two? I mean, you know, our our company Lingumi is an education company for for kids. And I'm, I'm not here to, you know, try and promote the software, but the story is relevant, which is that, as, as Nick touched on, we started by trying to build a, an interactive toy that connected to a, a software interface, and that could be on a laptop or a tablet or whatever, some screen, right? Because we needed to teach children words in English. We needed a device to transmit audio and, and, and imagery. Um, and we, we pretty quickly learned by trying and, and failing, uh, uh, you know, unlike, unlike Joe, who's probably just much more competent than, than me, but trying and failing to build a hardware company that is just much easier, much more scalable to build a business that uses the stuff people already have rather than trying to sell them some new bit of kit. And so we just transitioned to being an app, an app-based business. And that was that was really critical for us. We would indeed be, you know, dead in the water if we if we just tried to build hardware. But what that also meant was our initial ambition was to get kids sort of physically distant from the screen, but using it for what it's good at, which is, you know, in, in this context. Uh, teaching them words with correct pronunciation, um, but actually uh, the experience when we when we switch to screens, we can make it much richer, much more kind of co- complex language. We could be teaching that the permutations what's possible through software are much greater, and that's stood in our favour over over the years. And you know, as a <laughs> to, to 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 touch on what you were saying, Nick, um, if the app store did not exist, right, I am a direct beneficiary of the app store. And the economy that the App Store has built, which is a multi tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars economy now. But if it weren't to exist, we could be doing what we're doing on a laptop or on you know some other type of device, right? We just need an internet connection and a, and a screen and a speaker to do what we do. The smartphone is really just what consumers have chosen as the most convenient way to do it. And I guess to just lob a hand grenade of conversation in, I, I saw a video of a customer of ours who's a, a, a seller in a Taiwanese night market. So the the mom cooks noodles in the night market, and her kid was doing a lesson underneath the stand on a, on her mom's smartphone, and I thought that was a really nice, touching thing to see on a cheap, you know, a cheap Android phone. And while I really admire the ambition and the mission of a light phone, I do think that for like the liberal metropolitan elite, it's sort of a choice to disconnect. But for this mother in the nightstand in the in the market, she has one phone. She runs her business on it. She educates her child on it. That is, she needs that level of sophistication of technology at a you know $300 price point to be able to fulfill her ambitions for her for her family and also to be able to conduct her business. So I'm sort of, you know, I, I suspect Joe, you not to put words in your mouth, but your take is that that will still happen, but but people will find it hard to create separation and light phone is for separation, maybe rather than complete migration away from like all the power that modern technology brings economically and socially. Yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate. Uh, it definitely, we've always realized that going light, that's what we call the experience of using a light phone, is a luxury to many degrees. And the vast majority of our users, the light phone is not their only means of technology. They have laptops or tablets or even maybe their old smartphone at home on Wi-Fi. 
it reminds me of this one time where we had this idea that maybe we could be giving light phones to homeless kids in New York that need a phone number in order to get a job, even at like a McDonald's or some fast food chain. Uh, but when we started actually speaking with these kids, we realized like they would actually benefit from a smartphone more than a light phone because then they could go on Craigslist. That's uh, you know where people find jobs and random things, and they could they needed to be more connected uh, than the light phone. So it was actually you know not the great a great phone for them in their situation. And I've been reading up, obviously, about the light phone and, and most of the discourse I can see around it, whether it's you know unboxing videos on YouTube or like blogs and that sort of stuff is actually from people who are very into technology, basically saying, look, it's like almost in its untechnological nature, it's a very techie product. Has it had sort of mainstream pickup from people who are not people who feel like they need to repudiate technology because they're so invested in it, but from people who are just like normal people looking for just slightly more minimized functionality, or is it still like in a tech community product? I would say it's definitely not limited to a tech community. I would be hesitant to call it mainstream by any stretch of the imagination, especially numbers. Um, it's still a very, very niche. But I think what is really promising or exciting to me is the vast uh, diversity of users that we've kind of gathered. Um, mm -hmm. We have these Bible Belt religious families that find, you know, this kind of family value treasuring uh you know time with their newborn kid or you know being a better role model to their little brothers um this kind of spirit to like outdoor crowd that like you know really appreciate nature and that to you know people who are much more thrifty or privacy oriented or you know creatives who find this a great tool for you know separating their sacred time in the studio from the internet at large uh, to, you know, celebrities who have personal assistance to handle the, you know, nuances of Ubers and airplanes. And they're able to just talk to their friends and family without seeing, you know, what a million people on Twitter are talking about them. Uh, so it's, it's definitely not mainstream, but I think it, we're hitting a universal chord in that it's something that everyone is grappling with to some degree. Whether the light phone is the right solution or not, I think we're all trying to think through, like, how is technology making us feel and what steps might I take? Uh, and usually that's not throwing away every single piece of technology and going back 400 years, uh, but maybe just taking a, you know, a more disciplined approach, deleting some smartphone apps might be sufficient for many users that don't need to go fully and buy, you know, our little light phone. And what about kids? I mean, that, that seems like quite an obvious market for, for a product like this. We've seen some kid adoption. We've never really marketed it as a kid's phone, which probably helps in the kind of more like preteen, transitional, young adult, uh, where they don't want anything branded kids. They want an adult phone. But um, I think it's probably a little bit expensive. And there's, I think, a few more phones that are targeting uh, kids much more head on. Uh, I'd say we get more parents that want to be like a better role model for a kid than we do actually parents buying it for their kids themselves. Right. Toby, what sense of the um, the kind of the children's phone market do you get? I mean, it, I would be very anxious if I had a child, my hypothetical child, if my dog um, was getting a phone, his first phone, I wouldn't want him. Um, I don't know if I would want him having access to all of the internet all of the time. You know, is that not something that kind of concerns you or your or your stakeholders so invested in the total destruction of children's minds that well, they don't care? 
You know, our stakeholders are, are sort of interested in, in the education of children's minds, right? You know, English, speaking okay. English is like the That's greatest it. pathway to economic opportunity beyond coding, maybe, uh, for, for a young person who's born outside uh, of an English-speaking country, which is, you know, 90% of the world. But, in the, the, you know, what we have is, um, I, you know, I don't know anything about children's phone market because I think most kids, when they're 10 or 11 or 8 or 9, they get a phone and they're going to want a smartphone and they're not going to want to a light phone, because that's probably the age where they're going to be most attuned to things like TikTok or Roblox or whatever it might be that they mm-hmm. that they do. I won't pretend to, to follow kids of that age in particular. You sound like you know all about it. Well, I sort of, I, we, we tend to stop around Very eight, convincing. which is when phones begin. So what we have is sort of parent the parent hands the device over. They have an old iPad. Usually that's what happens. An old iPad, an old Android tablet, and they use that. But it, it seems to me like um, there's a sort of, I'm not going to call it like a sort of classist thing. But there's this like assumption, like when I follow the, the history of the light phone, which I was reading about earlier, it seems like you started with no applications. And I know you call them tools, but it's like an application that connects the internet rights to directions or music or podcasts. There's like progressive addition of, of applications. We could argue whether that's a slippery slope or not, but like what you're allowing us to do there is fill our basic needs, communication um, first, and then navigation. Uh, and then lastly, entertainment sounds like listening to music or listening to podcasts. And for some people, that kind of personal choice of entertainment might be watching TikTok videos. I don't have TikTok. I don't really use TikTok, but I'm aware lots of people use it, right? It seems to be a very effective way of, of entertaining oneself. Um, it's not my personal taste, but like it, it strikes me as like a personal judgment as to whether that's how someone wants to spend their time. I think it's easy to look from the outside and be like, oh, that's sort of corroding someone's mind. But, but maybe they're... Uh, kind of able to make that choice for themselves. I, I, I'm interested, Joe, in the sort of philosophy of that. Yeah, I mean, entertainment isn't really a goal of the light phone. Those two tools, apps, I think apps is totally a sufficient word, definitely cross that line or, you know, it starts to be on the fence of a slippery slope. Uh, but I would say we try never to be a, you know, holier than thou, you should, you feel guilty about TikTok, but um, the reality is there's definitely people that are feeling, you know, addicted. It's a word that we try not to use, um, but has definitely become the vernacular of smartphones and and especially the apps behind the smartphones are really what are addicting people. Uh, And so for them, not having TikTok is, you know, a huge breath of fresh air. And the pace at which you consume information on a podcast is vastly different than like mm. milliseconds of a post. Um, so I guess that's sort of where we try to draw the line. But like me personally, I've never used the podcast tool other than testing it and building it. Um, I have no interest in podcast on me on the go, but uh, we <laughs> tried to build it in a way where it was intentional. So you can't sit there and search infinitely in any of these tools. You can't even add the tool from the phone itself. You have to premeditatively do that from a computer. So Mm -hmm. these are just some of the kind of like, not friction for the sake of friction, but about intentionality uh, so that you're not waiting for a train and now you're fiddling with your light phone settings or trying to find a new podcast. You can download a couple ahead of time and that's what you're stuck with. So it ends up being still vastly different than uh, using a smartphone for entertainment. And I guess the fundamental balance that you have to achieve is the light phone has to be functional enough to prevent people from simply, you know, outsourcing those entertainment priorities to another device. Because if, if you're like, oh, I've got my light phone, but because it doesn't do podcasts, I have to bring my old iPhone along with me, then suddenly you're undermining your own purpose, I guess. 
Definitely. I mean, by expanding the phone, our goal is to, you know, obviously not reach everyone. Uh, that's, you know, impossible. And we, we are kind of self-aware enough. But to make it easier for more people to do it without, you know, feeling this kind of intense friction that they have to go back to a smartphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, in doing that, we're not going to make it a smartphone because you can start to add this feature for that person, this feature for that person. And before you know it, you can end up very much with a light smartphone. Joe, I'm interested in the in the in the economic side of this. You know, in, in my business, kind of riding on the on the smartphone wave, we can charge a subscription and people use our products as long as they want to, they cancel when they don't, and you know, we we sort of can pay our bills every month that way. Um, for you, it seems like you're you're sort of dependent on a minority of people who do want to commit to that lifestyle paying you once to buy a product. Even Apple now has a huge services business selling iCloud access and Apple Music and Apple Fitness and whatever else, um, because that's a very high margin revenue line for them, not to mention the App Store and the, and the, the 30% they charge for apps on there. How will you avoid this becoming economically quixotic, i.e. it's admirable, but ultimately doomed to fail? I would say, uh, you know, it's definitely something our investors would love to see a more recurring model uh, we do have a soft uh, a SIM card offering. It's optional, uh, and only a, you know a good fraction of our users use our SIM card to support us and the kind of goodwill. But you can probably get a cheaper SIM somewhere else, and you know by no way committed. So you're you're right. Our business model is we consider it honest, but it's also not nearly as lucrative as it could be. Um, you know, Apple tries to sell you a new phone every single year. We made the Light Phone 2, started shipping four years ago, and we're still updating it and not asking for any money. Um, so it's definitely a tricky thing because it's not the standard uh, and investors are you know sheepish to, to that kind of business model. But I think it's something that's super appealing to users to be like, okay, I paid $300 for this very simple phone, but I know that the directions are private. That's part of the cost. The, the voice to text is all handled privately. They're going to keep updating it. And I think in the long run, people are like, we'd like to see more businesses in this kind of business model. Um, but to speak briefly to your app, I would say by charging a subscription, a value, and then therefore like an honest cash exchange, like that's a, a very honest business model as well. And not really what most of the smartphone, the predatory apps that uh, we're kind of critical against are doing, which is this kind of like attention economy. It's free, um, obviously, with all of your data and time being um, <laughs> sucked away. Is there scope kind of down the line, I don't know if you've discussed this, to have a, to sort of introduce a light OS that would that could be used on other people's hardware? I wouldn't say it's something we've concretely thought about, um, only because our fear is that you're always, uh, you know, at the mercy of the smartphone, especially when it comes to the iPhone, which is by far the vast majority of our users come from iPhones. iPhones are the biggest market share. uh, And it's such a closed ecosystem that, I mean, until recently, there was very little we could do in terms of lightening it. Um, Mm. You know, a a, a software app's just not able to overtake the entire phone uh, in that way, or at least traditionally. And so even as they roll out features that allow apps to kind of play more of a screen time thing, um, we just felt like it was too risky to build on top of something that we couldn't control. And then there was also a kind of um, 
a study that we had always referenced. Uh, I believe Sherry Turkle mentions in her book where the smartphone itself, like the object, uh, especially for users that have had it for many years, actually represents a lot of our stress. So even if the phone doesn't ring, ping, ding, uh, just touching it in your pocket might remind you of that Instagram post or that email you forgot to send. Or So uh, we felt like making an object that felt drastically different was a really important part of it. Um, and I think it has proven to be true. Like when a light phone user pulls out their phone at a bar, someone's like, what the heck is that? And it, you know, there's this kind of like pride in being different versus just like having a smartphone and no one knows that you're actually light right now. There's kind of this, the object represents uh, what it is. But I think there's so much room for software solutions, um, especially given that it's cheaper People already own the phone. Why buy a new phone when you have a phone that you could, in theory, simplify down? So we're always encouraging that, even though it's kind of opposite our own business interest. Mm. I, I want to segue now just to um, talking about kind of something that's a kind of bugbear of mine. And this is something I, I guess I think of it often in terms of ESG, which is the um, the current trend in in investing to go for things that are green or you know have some sort of social purpose. And, and often things like carbon offsets are, are fraught with, you know, complications that make them not nearly as as good as they see on the on the on seem on the tin. And I always think of this as being like the problem is that it's it's a capitalist answer to a capitalism problem. And it does feel like the 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 impact that smartphones have had on our neurology, on our psychology, as well as on our society is a negative, a waste byproduct of the excesses. This is making me sound like a real tub-thumping communist, but on the excesses of of capitalism. And I do wonder whether a $300 phone, because it is it is an awful lot more expensive than, I guess, what the, um, the drug dealers of London would refer to as a burner phone, which you can buy for about 20, 30 quid. Is a $300 phone ever going to really be able to solve a problem created by capitalism? Just throwing it out there, guys. I would say most users, it's a very personal journey and it's definitely potentially has the potential to snowball into something much bigger, but uh, it's really, uh, you know, up to the user to make the most of the light phone. We have plenty of users that try going light and have way too much anxiety about what do I do now? You know, you're really faced with a blank piece of paper when you don't have the smartphone to kind of react to something. You can open a feed. Um, so when these users tell us about this, you know, profound change they've had in their lifestyle from getting four hours back a day, now they're taking more classes or changed their career, or, you know, just these honestly really touching stories. At the end of the day, they changed their life. If anything, the light phone was just a small catalyst and they used that opportunity to the best of their abilities. But I don't think we think the phone itself carries any inherent magic okay but if you're if you're charging 300 dollars for a dumb phone and 300 dollars is no longer expensive for a phone i appreciate that i god knows what the most recent iteration of the iphone costs but if you're charging 300 dollars for a dumb phone you're maybe pricing out the people who would be most positively impacted by the use of a dumb phone which is maybe people you, you know who have more spend more time on their phone who have maybe whose time is less professionally valuable younger people that sort of thing and equally i guess pushing the price down which i don't know whether that's a long-term goal for you is contrary to your business interests but if 
you keep if you maintain a sort of premium price point, then I guess the danger is or the criticism that emerges is that you're sort of monetizing something that feels like ideology, feels like a like a manifesto for social change, but maybe is really really a way of selling selling expensive product. Yeah, I can definitely see that argument. I guess a lot of our users tend to compare it more to like a therapist session or, you know, a digital detox retreat, which can cost thousands of dollars. And yeah, you had two weeks off the grid in some beautiful place, but then you come back to work on Monday and you're just as addicted to your smartphone as you've ever been. So, you know, for some of our users, although $300 is, you know, not a cheap phone, we're definitely not shy about that. Uh, It can be quite cheap for, you know, really finding that balance. And on the other hand, users tend to get a much cheaper phone plan too, because light phone, you don't need infinite data. Uh, So, you know, people are getting $10, $20, $30 cell phone plans. And so you you do start to get some financial incentive uh, in the long run, obviously. You have to use it for a year before you start really seeing that. But I think the the important context for a British listener is that in the US, $30 a month is a very cheap phone plan, whereas in the UK, that's like the high-end phone <laughs> plan because our data is so cheap. But I, I know... Really? That- what's, a, what's a standard... I'd be love, uh, sorry, just let me follow. What would be a standard um, phone plan price then in the US? I assume... I mean, granted, I haven't had a smartphone plan in quite some time, but I'm pretty sure no individual gets a plan under $100 that has unlimited everything. A lot of times they include... The hardware in that so it can get easily 130 if you're like paying the phone off or leasing a phone so not right. uncommon i mean you can get family plans and deals and start bundling in ways but i would say a hundred dollars is a pretty common or at least high 80s gosh yeah i always forget how expensive america is toby sorry I yeah well it, it's a nation of, of of you know cable bundles and and uh eight eight dollar flat whites nick so you know we're not used to that uh in in uh in Spendthrift, Little Britain. We're getting there. Uh, we are. No, what I was going to say, I know you want me to be a sort of techno-optimist in the direction of, of apps and so on, and I will, I will do that. But just to, to you know, if, if let's say Joe were to hire me to, to do the marketing for Lightphone, I would say you're looking at it wrong, Nick. Um, Joe, I agree with your point about the economically, you know, uh, least well-off are the ones who need smartphones most. What I think smart Lightphone should be is a sort of effectively a sort of physical, physicalized uh, public relations exercise where the most wealthy, the most elite can afford to use it as a sort of switch off device that they might take with them every three days a week or on the weekend or whatever. But but what that sort of feeds into is public policy around controlling access for young people or controlling uh, how apps use screen time, for example, and you know, lobbying with, with Tim Cook or Eddie Q or whoever the relevant person at Apple is to basically make screen time uh, more accessible to other developers to, to, as you say, Joe, because now it's, it's beginning to be possible to tap into those, those tools to control screen time, but also to set some government level regulation around what these apps are allowed to do. Because, you know, regardless of time, the use of data is very pernicious and it forces people to make bad buying decisions, bad health decisions, uh, et cetera, just like daytime TV in the past used to do. And now there's more and more rules restricting, say, advertising sugary drinks to kids and, and so on. I think, I think the digital economy, ironically, is rather behind in that respect. Joe? Yeah, I think that's... <laughs> that all rings true. Uh, you, you're going to hire Toby's. He's throwing his CV in in the mix there. He uh, <laughs> wants to be wants to leave. Yeah. Wants to move to America. <laughs> I mean, we'll be honest. Like we haven't done much in terms of activism for any sort of the policy changing side. I think I tend to be a little bit pessimistic 
uh, maybe it's just being an American that the government is even capable of such, you know, regulations. And we've always felt like if we can empower or educate the individual, that has a much better chance of them taking their own control uh, of the tools. And maybe then you can see a larger shift. Uh, but I don't know. I've seen congressional hearings of U.S. senators who seem like they have zero clue um, how the Internet works. And so that's not very encouraging that we might be able to tackle the problem from an angle that is probably really important. <laughs> OK, well, a pessimistic America. Yeah, I mean, Hillary Clinton still uses the, the BlackBerry. So, I mean, things certainly moving slowly over there. A BlackBerry is a, is a fine phone. I remember it. I remember it well. The Ned Lard Radio Hour is a Poto podcast written and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The theme music, which you're hearing now, is the internet song by Apes of the State, used with their generous permission. And the artwork is by Tom Humberston. For all socials and all of that, go to nedlardlives.com and help me by spreading the world. Spreading the word, even. God, leave that in. Wandered round our neighborhood, speakless, lighting shit and fire and smoking